Buenas tardes. Good afternoon. Oh, I'm glad we're not in Elkins. Yesterday I was supposed to be in Elkins, and then we weren't in Elkins, and then they said maybe at Friday at 2, and then they said no, not Friday at 2, Thursday at 2, which was already 3.15, so I was already late for that. And then they decided, no, we can find a place for you on Friday. I thought, well, I hope somebody finds me. Got some friends who found me. We're so glad that you're here. And then I thought, boy, Friday afternoon at 3.15. Do you want to be in Elkins? I said, no, not Friday afternoon at 3.15. It'll just, you know, you'll hear the crickets. But I'm so happy to see you all here. And uh, thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Dan Rodriguez. And it's my pleasure to uh, teach here at Pepperdine. I'm finishing right now, actually, my 25th year. It's hard to believe I've been here for that long, but I've been here for 25 years, and um, I uh, teach in the area of missiology and practical theology. Uh, I don't teach as much as I used to. As of two years ago, I started in my new role as the divisional dean of the religion and philosophy division. So it's always exciting whenever I had a chance to actually get in front of students again, even if they're a little bit older than my students normally are. But I'm really grateful to have you all here this afternoon, and uh, I hope that uh, this is going to be a good investment of an hour of your time, that uh, all of us are encouraged by it. it it's not the, 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 the most exciting topic, but I think it's an incredibly important topic, and you'll see why as we, as we continue this morning or this afternoon. But I'd like to just begin with a word of prayer, and I just want to thank uh, God for this, this incredible privilege and opportunity. Oh, dear God, I want to thank you so much for this uh, beautiful day, this beautiful place right now that is filled with uh, your sons and your daughters who've come from all over California, some even beyond California, some even beyond the United States, to, to spend a few very special days here on our campus at Pepperdine. And I'm grateful that we have this place that for these few days can become uh, your church, uh, where people who love you uh, are coming together uh, to learn and to teach, uh, to encourage and be encouraged. Um, Father, some for healing. I know I've, I've had conversations with people this week who are in, in just going through very challenging times. And our country's in a challenging time right now, Father. And I want us to be able to pause for a few minutes today to look at the life of this very complicated man, David, and, and learn what we can about, uh, about how to... Uh, think about, talk about, and relate to people in positions of authority who sometimes we don't respect. In fact, sometimes they are just, they are despicable. Sometimes the Father, they anything but, but respectable. And yet there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a vision you have for our relationship with those folks, whether they're our parents or teachers or leader in a church, Peace officers, police officers, border patrol officers, politicians, the elderly. Oh, Lord, we have so many people that we struggle to respect and honor. Help us today, Father. Help us today to understand your will for us as your people and how it impacts our mission, your mission in this world. Thank you, Father. Bless us today. And may everything we say and think during the next hour, bring glory and honor to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you. Great to see you all again. Thank you for joining us. I think this is a lot more comfortable than Elkins at this time of the day. On a Friday afternoon, 3.15, people are tired. They're, they're over at Starbucks trying to get enough caffeine in their system that they can make it through the rest of the day. But I'm glad that we're here together. And um, I want to begin by asking a question. Um, 
just want, don't want any answers right out loud because I'm guessing that uh, it might be embarrassing in some cases, but who are some of the most difficult people for you to respect and honor and why? Who are some of the people? Think about it right now. Just a show of hands. How many of you had no problem thinking of someone that it's difficult for you to honor or respect? Uh, I did. I, I struggled. Um, you know, I still struggle uh, with my dad. My dad... Uh, uh, passed away about 12 years ago, um, but he left my mom and my brothers and I when I was 10 years old. I was the oldest of three boys. Um, he loved his alcohol and his horses more than he loved us. And not only did he leave us, I mean, I had friends whose parents divorced and father left, but the father, you know, would, would come by and pick them up and take them on the weekends and buy them presents for birthdays and, you know, make sure they spent special time with him at Christmas time and took him to Disneyland and baseball games and even though the parents couldn't get along the parent the father or the mother whoever was uh, was there uh, that wasn't my dad um, he just left and didn't look back uh, later on he came into our lives and he still struggled and it was it was difficult uh, he was a difficult person for me to to respect I've also had the incredible privilege of serving um, in different capacities as a servant leader in, in the Lord's Church, uh, from the time I was a teenager to the very moment to this day. And, well, I've had some experiences of working and partnering with people in ministry that were difficult to respect. Some of them brought great dishonor on the church, uh, shame on the name of Christ, and were difficult to work with. Um, you know, I remember once when one, one particular leader who was a difficult, very difficult person to work with, I guess the best way to describe him is he had diatrophy syndrome. Anybody remember diatrophies in that little book called Third John? There's, there's a person described, they're a church leader um, who had, his name was diatrophies. I like to call diatrophy syndrome. I like to use that term to describe people who want to be first, who want to be in charge, who, who for them being a servant leader in the church is all about authority. And I remember talking with a, with a, a coworker at the time who said, you know what, we just need to pray that God takes him home. I had never heard anybody mention that before. You know, pray that the Lord take him home. And I thought, wow, that's, that's a pretty serious prayer, you know, because we, we couldn't ship him away. You know, he was the head elder, if you know what I'm talking about. That was challenging. I've had employers that were challenging to work for, challenging to respect, knowing they were cheating the company that they were working for. The way they treated employees, including me, made it very difficult uh, to respect them even to obey them. But again, I had a vested interest. I had to bring that check home. And so some of you probably are thinking of people like that. I don't know. Um, the Bible tells us, you know, that there are, there are, there are relationships that, that we're involved in that now are impacted by our relationship with Christ. And one way that we honor God in those relationships is by showing respect, uh, by showing honor to people. It's a spouse, parents, church leaders, the elderly, I mean, they, they struggle as I'm getting closer to that category. Well, for some, I'm already in that category, Giselle. I know what you're thinking. But, uh, but you know, for, for, as I get closer to that, I realize, wow, you know, elderly people just don't get treated with a lot of respect anymore. Uh, less and less, it seems like. And it's like, what's going to happen to me in another 40 years when I become elderly? You know, uh, but those are difficult sometimes people to respect, masters or employers, 
government officials, well, you know, we can go on. And I, I don't need to tell you that our society uh, recently, and it, it's just, it's here right now, and it's hard to believe that we're already starting another cycle. We're getting ready for, the, for November 3rd, 2020. You know what happens on November 3rd, 2020? We're going to elect a new president or re-elect a president. And already everybody's posturing. We're here, and it's going to be a long campaign season. I can already see it. You know, and I, 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 I almost can bet that the next campaign, campaign season is going to be nastier, uglier than the last one. Why? Because there's no reason to believe it's not going to be. It's become vogue to be disrespectful and, and, and mean to people you don't like or to respect or you don't agree with. I, I, I saw some recent um, exit polls that were asking people about the most recent election in 2016. Um, you know, who did you vote for and why did you vote for them? And the, the, one of the very top reasons that people voted for President Trump or voted for Secretary Hillary Clinton, the top reason, one of the top three reasons for both in exit polls was, well, they voted for, for who is President Trump now because he wasn't Hillary. Or they voted for Hillary because she wasn't Donald Trump. And I think you all have seen, no doubt, also in social media, you know, the, the way that we speak about people that we don't agree with, particularly politicians, especially when you can do it anonymously now on the internet. We've become a group of people that are, as a, as a society, just, we're not civil, we're not kind, we're not nice, we're certainly not respectful. And it's not just with government officials. I mean, we, you know, police officers, um, in many cases, with good reason, are not respected like they were when I was a child. There are neighborhoods, I, when I grew up as a kid, you know, I was told, and we told our children later on when we moved to Mexico, well, before we moved to Mexico, and we would, we, I was told as a kid, if you ever get in trouble, you ever get lost, look for a police officer, you know, and they'll take care of you. Uh, then we moved to Mexico with our kids, and we weren't sure that that was a really good idea. But there are some people who believe that, you know, police officers, uh, in general, are not safe, are not the place that you want to go in an emergency. And, and they don't just have that feeling, but, but they show incredible public and personal disrespect for that authority, sometimes with very good reason, because of the experiences they had. There are, there are neighborhoods here in Los Angeles. I'm a native-born Angelino. I was born here. And, and, and there are neighborhoods where uh, people, you know, that's the last person you want to call. You know, call the police. No, don't call the police. You know, they'll just make things worse here. Um, and it's challenging for many of us for whom, you know, we honor the badge, but for others it's difficult. And of course, uh, I don't need to tell you, especially after last night's prophetic word from Sarah Barton, we live in a society where people are learning, especially uh, sisters among us and women among us, you know, you can't respect uh, your employer, men, maybe even more in general than any other group. We can't respect them. They don't respect us. We can't honor them. Um, well, what do we do with this? How do we deal with that? And, and does David's life offer any kind of advice for us who want to honor people who are difficult to honor? And should we even try to honor people who are difficult to honor? And so I, I'm going to ask you to remember back a couple of episodes in the life of David. And again, David's a complicated character. I remember, you know, listening on Tuesday night, Randy Harris reminded us, you know, whenever David did something great, you know, worth imitating. It was because he was, 
he was you know, motivated by humility. And when he did horrible things, as, as he certainly did uh, with, with uh, Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, you know, it was driven by pride. Uh, this is one of those moments that we're going to look at where David was, was driven by humility. It, it, you look at the story that we're going to look at briefly today and you realize, well, no wonder he's called a man after God's own heart. Other stories, you're like, wow, that could not be the epitaph for this man after what he did to Bathsheba. But today we're going to look at a story that I think is, is probably familiar to you. And if not, hopefully it'll be something that we think about that maybe you'll even help, cause, help people think about in the next 16 months before the next election in particular. Or maybe just in your own struggle with maybe a spouse, maybe a leader at your church, maybe a, a teacher at school, um, maybe an employer, someone else that you need to respect, but it's just very, very difficult to respect. You remember the story. David is on the run. David's been on the run for 20 years. Um, and uh, he's been on the run because Saul, who is king, is aware that David has been anointed by God to be his successor. He's threatened with good reason. He's paranoid. But he's also tormented right now. A, a, an evil spirit has come into his life. He lost the spirit of the Lord that now is on David's life, and now he's tormented by this evil spirit. And among other things that spirit does, is it fills him with insecurity. It fills him with fear and jealousy. And all he can think of is, i got to get rid of David. And David is on the run. Sometimes he has to even run into en enemy territory. That's the safest place he could go is cross the border into en enemy territory. But in this story, we see David and his men, and they're hiding because Saul, the war with the Philistines, one of those many, many wars he found him in, had just ended. And now Saul is, is, is safe from the Philistines, and someone has reminded him, you don't, don't forget about David. You know, David, he's got some people in his camp Saul, he's got people in his camp who believe that David is a threat, and they're constantly filling him with negative information. They're constantly tweeting him, sending him texts, saying, David isn't your friend. Watch out for the son of Jesse. You know, he's going to stab you in the back. We've heard these horrible things about him. He's talking about you. Most of it, of course, untrue. And so he gets 3,000 of his best people, his best soldiers, and they go looking for David. They hear he's in a certain part of the desert. They go looking for David. Somewhere along the journey, looking for David, the king, like some of us at about 315, have had too much coffee, and we need to go to the restroom. I ran into somebody and said, I'll be right in, but i got to go to the restroom first. You know, that's probably where you were as well. You know, Bob, at our age, we got to look every 45 minutes, we've got to go. You know, and so the, the Saul has to go to the restroom. And he goes into a cave. I don't know if he went to the one said men, women, or, you know, family. But he went into a cave to relieve himself, the Bible says. And while he's in there, he doesn't realize it. But further back in the cave, David and his men are hiding. And David's men say, wow, this is amazing. God has clearly anointed you. you I mean, you, you just won the lottery. The king is in here, and nobody is in here to protect him. He's coming in. He's turned his back towards us. You can see the image, right? You've got that in your head. Maybe you wish it wasn't there right now. And so Saul is taking care of business. We'll just say it like that. And it's like, here, here's a knife, David. Go and just kill him right now. But David won't do that. He respects the king too much to do that because he is the anointed so instead, he goes up with the knife, and he cuts a little piece of his robe off. 
I know what you're thinking. Yeah. Cuts a piece of that robe off, and he goes back into the dark end of the cave. Salt finishes what he's doing. He walks out. He, he's about to where his men are, waiting for him. And then David walks out of the cave, and this is what he says. Then David went out of the cave, and he called out to Saul, My lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urge me to kill you. If you read the first six verses there, his men are saying, kill him. This is it. This is it. And David says, no, there is no way I'm going to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. And David reminds him, I have men back there in the cave who said, kill him. But I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. And he continues just a few moments, a few verses later, he says, See my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut it off, the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. He's pleading his case here. I've not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord, now he's not talking about Saul, he's talking about the Lord God Almighty. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob says, May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. There's a very similar passage in 26, in chapter 26. Once again, by the way, at the end of this passage, if you read the rest of chapter 24, you know, uh, the king says, Oh, David, you're right. I am such a scumbag. I'm a horrible person. Man, I apologize. Come back home. Everything's going to be, oh, great. Oh, be great. And you're a better person than me. And you're clearly going to be king someday. Just promise that you'll take care of my family and not in a mafia way. <laughs> and then Saul heads off, but David won't have any of it. He goes back and hides again because he knows that this man isn't a man of his word. Two chapters later, another war later, Saul once again has time on his hands, some peace that he can enjoy, and he gets his 3,000 men again, and once again they go out looking for David. And in chapter 26, it's a little bit different. They've been looking for David all night in the desert, all day for several days in the desert, and, and finally they camp at night. And the way you camp if you're the king is you, you camp in the middle of your 3,000 chosen men. And they're in a circle around you. You've got bodyguards even while you sleep. And he plunged his sword next to his cot and his jug of water, it says. And he went to bed, protected by Joab, his faithful general, or Abner, and all his 3,000 men. And David shows up with one of, the, uh, uh, one of his trusted men. And they sneak into the camp. God caused the super deep sleep to fall on them, like the kind that I fall into if I take an Ambien when I get on a plane. It's like, I'm gone. I don't know anything. <laughs> They're out. And David and his, his, his fellow soldier walk up, and they sneak into the camp. And the young man says, let me take this spear and plunge it through his head, through his body. I won't need two blows. One will do it. And David says, no, this is the Lord's anointing. We are not going to touch him, but we will take his sword, and we will take his jug. And then they sneak out of the camp again. And as soon as they're far enough away, he yells for the king and for his general. 
And once again, he shames the king by saying, I could have killed you. You keep listening to these horrible messages, to this rumor. You keep listening to all these, these, these people around you who are only saying evil things about me. They're not telling you the truth. And they're filling your head with all of these things. But I want you to know, you really have no reason to fear me. In fact, uh, where's your spear? Where's your water jug? Aren't these your spear and water jug? I could have killed you. God put you in my hands, but I refuse to lift my hand against God's anointed. And the response by Saul is very similar. Oh, I'm so sorry. You're just, you're better than me, and you're going to be a come king, and please don't, you know, wipe out my family. And, and again, David has to flee. Two chapters later, the next chapter, Saul is dead, and David is able to rightfully take the place that is his. But there's just some things I see in this story that just jump out at me. When I look at, first is Saul. I mean, you think about Saul. Saul was a hard person to respect and honor. I mean, here's just a few of his flaws. Real quick, he was insecure. If you remember 1 Samuel chapter 10, when he's, when he's been anointed by God, and now it's time for him to be presented before all the people. He's hiding in the luggage. And he's taller than any man in the, in the kingdom, but he's insecure. He was overly influenced by the actions and opinions of others. This happens more than once in chapter 13, but also in the chapter that we just finished reading. He was prone to make rash decisions and promises. We're going to fight with these Philistines and no one can stop to eat or drink until we've killed everyone. Well, that was a stupid decision to make. He failed to show courage when challenged openly by his enemies. Forty days in the Valley of Elah, you know, Goliath walks down and he says, Isn't there anybody from Israel who will take me on? It should have been the king. Saul should have said, I'll do it. But he doesn't. He didn't trust and obey God as king of Israel when Samuel said, Wait for me. Don't offer the sacrifice until I get there. And then you can fight with the Philistines. Instead, he's waiting. Man, Solomon, I mean, Samuel is like, you know, is he on Mexican time? Two days, three days. And his soldiers start to flee because they see the army of the Philistines grow larger and larger and their numbers dwindle and, and people are bailing and, and, and Saul wants a blessing and he just can't wait. He can't obey God. He made excuses then for his disobedience. He, he wasn't one of those people that said, yeah, like David. When David is confronted by Nathan in 2 Samuel for what he had done to his friend Uriah and what he had done to his wife, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. He says, you're right, that was me. And he falls on the ground and he confesses his sin. Not Saul. Saul makes excuses. Saul couldn't handle anyone receiving more praise than he did. When people started singing the song, you know, Saul has killed his thousands. And I don't know what sound, I don't know what the music was. If it was like to the tune, we will, we will rock you. And then all of a sudden, but, but David has killed his ten thousands. You know, Saul could not handle anybody in the kingdom having, you know, his name or her name in bigger, bigger letters than his own. He had a real difficult time with that. He also doubted the loyalty of those closest to him and often drove them away. Perfect example is, is David, who we're studying here. But he was also tormented by fear and jealousy. And then if you read his story, he never consults God. He never looks for God asking for inspiration or guidance. Really, he had many fatal flaws. These are just a few. Make him a very difficult person to respect and honor. And when you think about David saying, I'm not going to dishonor God by dishonoring his anointed, just think of some of these characteristics and others I'm sure that you could think of your, yourself when you reflect on the life of Saul. But David did honor him. David honors a dishonorable king. 
listen to, just think about some of the things we've just read in those verses from chapter 24. David honors Saul's office. It's clearly not Saul, the person he's honoring, because Saul is dishonorable. Saul does not deserve to be respect. The reason that David doesn't kill him is why? Why does David refuse to kill Saul? Because he's such a nice guy? Because he's God's anointed. It's the office David respects. It's the office he respects. Not the man. This man does not deserve respect, but he is nonetheless the Lord's anointed. David speaks respectfully about Saul to those under his influence. People, you know, David, this is your, and David, nope, nope, that is, we are not going to do that twice. In chapter 24 and chapter 26, his followers say, man, take him out, David. This is it. He's, God, they even use God. God has put him into your hands. God is clearly saying, kill him. And David is like, I'm not going to do that. Instead, he speaks. He didn't say, yeah, he's a scumbag. Yeah, he's like the worst thing that's ever walked the face of the earth. He still speaks about Saul in a respectful way. And this is a man who's not respectable. But he speaks that. He knows the people who are around him, who listen to his voice, who, who think anything David says is worth repeating. And many do. That's why we have many of these psalms. And David's like, listen to me. If you really respect me as your you know, chieftain, then please listen to me. Don't do this. Don't think this way about the king. And then when David has an opportunity to actually speak to the king, he speaks to the king respectfully. It's really just, to me, it's very surprising, and it's so different from our society today where if we don't respect a leader, we speak evil of her or him whenever we can or wherever we can on social media. And, you know, we've all seen on the news, you know, uh, some, somebody, especially in politics, is, is speaking and there are people in the crowd shouting them down. And it's like, this is, this is a senator. This is, this is the Secretary of State. This is the President of the United States. You know, even if you don't like them, show them respect. The people, I'm not going to stand up if he walks into the room. I wouldn't shake her hand. It's, like, it's not about that person. It's about their office. But we live in a society that's very different today. And, and, and I think David's example is, even when he has the opportunity to speak, he speaks very respectfully of him. And not only does he speak respectfully, he acts respectfully. I'm sure it was hard for his followers who were back in the tunnel, who walked out to the opening of the tunnel, and David stands out there and he's yelling out to Saul, and Saul turns around, and the first thing that David does, he falls on his ground, prostrate, it says, his face to the ground. And they're probably thinking, David, that man does not deserve that. That man does not deserve that kind of humility from you. You're the real king. But David, he knows he's being watched. I'm being watched. I'm going to behave in a way that honors the anointed. Another thing I see in David, and maybe you did too, is that David respectfully and humbly reasons with Saul. He, he, he does not agree with Saul. Saul's had his mind brainwashed with this evil message that David is really an enemy. David does not have your best interest in mind. As soon as David has a chance, he's going to wipe out your entire family, including his best friend, Jonathan. He's filled with all these lies. And David takes this opportunity, unsuccessfully, to reason with Saul, both times in chapter 24 and in chapter 26. Let me explain. You know, look at this cloth. Look at this spear. Look at this jug. 
I'm trying to explain to you, you know, he's, he's, given, he's, he's trying to explain to Saul, Saul, I am not your enemy. You have nothing to fear. The people you should fear are those closest to you who are filling your heart and your mind with fear and with jealousy. He tries to respectfully reason with him. It, there's no name calling. Well, you're just stupid. You're just an idiot. How often have you heard that word in the last couple of years? The other thing that I appreciate about David in this story is that David trusts God to decide who's right, him or God, him or Saul. He says, God's going to decide. And the way he's going to decide is if he wants you out of the story, God's going to take you out. I'm not going to take you out. We're going to let God decide. And I think this is, this is powerful. We'll say more about this in just a moment. But this is a powerful message for us today who want to sometimes leverage political power as Christians. And I just think, you don't see David leveraging political power like that. He's trusting God, the true king, the king of the universe, to do what's right. And finally, he trusts God to protect him from Saul. Well, we've, we've got we've to vote this way or that way. If not, you know, our whole way of life is going to be destroyed. And David is saying, as a Christian, your whole way of life, you can't trust God. You can't trust God to take care of you. David clearly trusted God to take care of him. Now, I mentioned that, you know, we have an election coming, and boy, we're going to hear about it over and over and over again. And let me just say up front, I think everybody needs to know, it's, I, for almost 20 years, I have been an independent. Uh, I grew up as a young boy here in Los Angeles. Uh, my heroes were John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, his brother, who was really my hero, and, and Martin Luther King Jr. And growing up in a Hispanic neighborhood in Los Angeles, everybody was Democrat. If you were Mexican, you were Democrat. You were born Mexican, it meant you were born to be a Democrat. And then somewhere about high school, I don't know, I was, believe it or not, I was the, I, I'm one of those rare Mexicans, Democrats, in 1972, that, were, that was driving, I was driving people to the polls to vote for the reelected president, Richard Nixon. Yeah, are you crazy, a Mexican? Yeah, not, yeah, I couldn't vote yet, so I could at least drive people to the polls. I mean, that's crazy. And then for, for, you know, different elections, I was one of those schizophrenic Democrats. I didn't know who to vote for, and I, I found myself voting more and more for Republicans for different reasons. And then it just hit me that as I listened to people talk about, Christians talk about politics and, and talk about elections and talk about candidates, I realized that we had become so partisan. I, I ran into, you know, Christians who were, you know, they believed if you loved God, if you loved Jesus, if you were a true follower of Jesus, of course you're going to be Democrat. Or, you know, if you're really a, a true disciple of Jesus, of course you're going to be a Republican. Um, and I, I just thought, well, you're missing something. I, I realized that as a Christian, to have a prophetic voice, not just in the church, but in our community, I, I, I could not have a partisan voice. And so for the last 20 years, uh, a little over the last 20 years, I have been an independent, a true independent. And, and you know, I, I, I don't vote party line. You know, my wife still gets one of those letters, and our kids' letters come from Republicans or Democrats and say, here are the people to vote for. Here are the ways you should vote for all of these different uh, propositions, and etc." And I think, yeah, vote, vote party line. And I know people who vote party line. They take that sheet, they go into the 
election booth and they vote. This is what Democrats vote like, or this is what Republicans vote like. And they think, have you thought about it? It doesn't matter. I'm a Republican and I know that's the party of God, or I'm a Democrat and that's the party of God. And I just think, hmm, I just don't know that that's really the way we should think. You know, these are some of the, the pairings that people are anticipating. Is it going to be the president against Senator Biden? Is it going to be the president against uh, Bernie? Is it going to be the president uh, against um, uh, uh, Camilla Harris? Is it going to be uh, the president against, oh, what's her name right now? A Warren. Warren. Yes, yeah, Senator, I mean, Governor Warren. Governor or senators? Mm-hmm. Senator Warren. You know, it's good, you know, these are like the top four Democrats. You know, maybe somebody else comes out of the, I was going to say comes out of the closet. Somebody else comes out of the dark and, and takes the lead. But, you know, as we think about, you know, the possibilities of the next, you know, 16 months, uh, no doubt in our society, you're going to hear people say, well, you can't possibly vote for him because, you know, he's, he's so dishonorable in this way. Or you can't possibly vote for her because she's so dishonorable in this way. And then we'll just get into, you're going to hear people just, just talk so ugly about people. Not necessarily about positions or about platforms, but just attacking the person. We're going to see that over and over again. And I wonder, when I think about David's example, and I think about what the New Testament tells us about our attitudes towards our society, and, and in particular, its, its civil leaders, I'm reminded of passages like this one, and it raises the question that I think we should ask ourselves. Do we honor the Lord? Do we honor the Lord by respecting the office, whether it's the local congressman or the, the local mayor or the, the, state, uh, the state's governor or the state's U.S. senator or the, or the country's um, uh, president? Do we respect and honor the Lord by respecting the office with our speech, and with our behavior, listen to what uh, Peter uh, says to the early church. He, he's saying some things that are not real popular, but I think we need to at least consider them in 2019. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake in order to honor the Lord, in order to embrace his mission, to participate with Christ, to honor Christ. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor by the way, if we're correct, the emperor at this time was Nero, who was probably a lot more dishonorable even than Saul, as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but don't, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. And one reason is because we're all created in the image of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. And then once more time, he says, fear God and honor the emperor. Honor. He doesn't name him because I don't think it's, it's a particular emperor he has in mind. He's talking about an office. He's talking about people that God uses uh, to do his will. Sometimes we read in the Old Testament how people like Cyrus, the Persian, was the servant of God. You think, how could that pagan be a, you know, a servant of God? Well, if God's using him, he's a servant of God, whether he's a pagan or not. 
ask ourselves then, are, are we honoring God by respecting the office? I, I don't respect that governor. I don't respect that senator. I don't respect the president of the United States. I don't respect my boss. I don't respect my teacher. I don't respect that police officer. But I respect, I need to show proper respect to the office. And the motivation is for the sake of the Lord. Wish we had time to flesh this out. A question I, 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 I come away with when I reflect on David's interaction with Saul in chapter 24 and 26 of, of 1 Samuel, I think, do we speak to others truthfully and respectfully about our leaders? Um, it, it's so easy. You, somebody, somebody puts something on Facebook, somebody tweets you something, somebody puts something on Instagram, and it's, it's, it's something, you know, it's, it's fuel, it's, it's ammunition against the, the politician that you don't like. It's against the politicians that you don't respect. And we retweet sometimes without even checking, fact-checking. We, 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 we share stuff out there, and we send it around, and it's just horrible. I get things sent to me, because I've got a few friends that are very interested in things like politics, and they're, they're red or they're blue, and, and they're sending me this, this stuff, and I'll look at it, and sometimes I'm like, this is not true. This never happened. She never said that. He never said that. Yeah, I, I don't... I don't necessarily respect this person or like this person either, but that's not true. Quit sharing that. It's not true. And of course, it's much easier now with social media. You know, are we speaking the truth in love? Yeah, there are things perhaps you feel like, no, people need to know this about this candidate. People need to know that about that candidate. Well, first of all, is it truthful? And can you share it respectfully? In Ephesians, Paul has twice this, this command to speak truthfully. He says, instead, speak truthfully. Speak, speaking the truth in love will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. That is Christ. He says this a few more verses later. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. We need to be really careful. Not just what we put on social media, but what we share at the coffee machine, what we share at the at, at the at the you know, the, the break room, what we share with people when we're standing in line at the grocery store and we're looking at the, the magazine rack and, you know, here's something about some candidate and you're like, oh yeah, I believe that. You know, it says inquire. Most of the time I know it's just garbage. But today they're talking about her. Or today they're talking about him. It must be true. You know, and we say, yeah, yeah, I knew that. You know, do we speak truthfully and respectfully? I think it's important for people to know if there's something they don't know about a candidate, that they know it, but can we share those things and make sure, first of all, is it true? And can I share it in a respectful way? I hear David speaking to his men about Saul in a way that's so different than the way I hear people, especially Christians, speak about leaders, whether they're political or they're in the workplace. Uh, it's so different, so different. Another, another question I ask myself is this. Would our attitude towards the dishonorable, particularly in the political realm, would our attitude towards the dishonorable be different if we viewed ourselves as resident aliens whose true citizenship was not of this country? I, I, I want to recommend, by the way, this book by Stanley Hauerwas and, and, and Williman. This book called Resident Aliens. It's the second or newest edition of this book. And, and they, they are writing, these are, these are um, uh, seminary professors at Duke uh, in, in North Carolina. And they're, they're suggesting that part of the problem in the North American church is that we have a difficult time separating our Christian identity 
from our U.S. identity, from our identity as United States citizens. We can't hardly separate them. In fact, for many people, to be a United States American is to be a Christian. And to be a Christian is to be a United States American. And, and so, you know, uh, and of course, we, we reinforce that with what Richard Hughes calls some of the myths that America lives by. Things like, well, this is a Christian nation. Uh, this is a chosen nation. Um, and and when, you, when you listen to those myths and you personalize those, then it seems like then fighting for the, quote, I just read this recently, uh, fighting for the soul of America. That what's at stake in 2020 in the election is the soul of America. And, and, and behind that is this notion that we are this, this Christian nation that's on the verge of losing its soul. And boy, who we select to be the next president or to be president again, be re-elected president, it, what's at stake is the soul of our country will cease perhaps to be, in another four years or another eight years, a Christian nation. Howard Wallace and Willimon are, are suggesting that maybe we're, we're starting with an assumption that, that is just not, well, biblically tenable. Theologically, it's untenable. What they argue is that every country that has ever existed, any nation that's ever, any empire that's ever existed and will exist today or in the future, every one of those societies is Egypt, Babylon, Nineveh, Rome. There is no such a place. In fact, even, they even argue that even Israel in the first century, when Jesus was on this earth, his own people, he refused to acknowledge that they were who they thought they were. They needed to repent. They need, they, they, he referred to them as the lost sheep of Israel. They were the lost sheep of Israel. If he could say that about the people who truly were descendants of Abraham and who were the quote-unquote people of God, at least biologically because of their relationship to Abraham, what about us who are spiritual children of Abraham? What would he say about us? What would he think about our language our description of our country as somehow the, the new people of God. Well, then, well, if it's, if it's Egypt, if it's, and I'm, I'm reminded of, of how many people think of the United States that way, because I spend a lot of time uh, with Hispanic churches around the United States consulting with them. Many of them, as you might imagine, have larger numbers than you're probably familiar with or used to being around. They have more members than your lo local uh, dominant group church of members who are undocumented, who are immigrants, either documented or undocumented. And, um, and many of those people I've, I've had a chance to visit with and talk with, and when I lived in Mexico for, for nine years, I, I learned to listen to people talk about coming to the United States. Some had to come to the United States because their family needed them to come here and make money to send it back home, send what we call remittances back home. And, and it would be traumatic. We have to send our oldest daughter. We've got to send our oldest son to El Norte so they can find a job and send us money back here in Oaxaca or in Puebla or Veracruz because the economy is so bad and, and we're starving to death. And so they reluctantly send somebody to El Norte. And then I, I remember as I was, I thought, I always assumed they were just, you know, thrilled to be able to come. It's, it, most of the time they went or they went kicking and screaming. And then I heard people use this phrase uh, in Spanish. I'll tell you what the phrase is in Spanish, and then I'll translate it for you, unless somebody else can do that for us. But I, I would hear people say, 
about their own country. This is Mexico, where I lived for nine years. Pobre México. Pobre México. Tan lejos de Dios. Tan lejos de Dios y tan cerca de los Estados Unidos. Anybody want to translate that? Pobre México. Tan lejos de Dios y tan cerca de los Estados Unidos. Exactly. Poor Mexico. So far from God and yet so close to the United States. What did they think about the United States? Yeah, they're coming here. You know, is it because it's the promised land? No, it's Egypt. They're coming here the same, for the same reason that, that Jacob sent his sons to Egypt, where they ended up discovering their brother was still alive, Joseph. But why did they go? They all go and settle in Egypt. Is it because Egypt was the promised land? Why did they go there? Famine. There's a famine. They're going to die if they stay in the promised land, and they go to Egypt. And so being around many immigrants who are coming to this country, particularly from different parts of Latin America, I, I've come to realize you know, they, this is not the promised land. It's one of the reasons they like to li live close together and, and, provide, and, and build up these faith communities that are really a little bit of El Salvador, a little bit of Nicaragua, and they're preserving their language and culture because they're hoping to go home someday. And then they get upset when their children start acting like Egyptians. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, you know, that's not the way the dominant group... I didn't grow up thinking of the United States that way. I was born and raised here, just like my, my parents. My dad is buried in the National Cemetery in Riverside. My father-in-law is buried in the National Cemetery in Santa Anella, near, near, the San, near San Francisco. Um, I was raised to believe this is, you know, the land of the free home and the brave. This is the promised land. That's why everybody's coming. It's the promised land. It's the greatest place on earth, and I do believe that it is a great nation. But I think sometimes we struggle with separating our identity as followers of Jesus from our identity as, you know, passport-carrying, you know, United States Americans. And, and what would happen if we changed our perspective and saw ourselves like those people that I meet who come here? They are literally resident aliens. What if we saw ourselves as spiritually resident aliens? aliens in this country. Would it change anything? I think it would. And I think that's precisely what Peter was trying to get at because the people he's writing to, particularly in First and Second Peter, these people he's writing to, because they have pledged their allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord, all of their friends and all of their neighbors are saying, you're no longer one of us. You're now an outsider. And so he uses that language to describe them. And he says, for instance, in chapter 1, Verse 1 of First Peter, he says, to the foreigners and aliens. And then he says that we're supposed to live in fear as foreigners and aliens in chapter 1, verse 17. And then he comes back to that theme again here in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from the sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. He's telling them to embrace their identity as resident aliens, as foreigners and, and aliens living in Babylon. In fact, he writes at the end of the letter, he says, we believe he's writing from Rome, but he says, I'm writing from Babylon. And I think what Peter would say is, wherever you are is Babylon. Wherever you are is Babylon. Assume that posture now. They're treating you like resident aliens. You're not sure what it's like to be a resident alien. Well, look at some resident aliens that live in our community who literally are resident aliens, especially those who are undocumented. They can teach you a little bit about, and teach us about, about being resident aliens. But I think 
Peter would have a struggle with some of the imagery and some of the way we, we project in our society uh, this, this indiscriminate way of, of looking at our two identities. And we have many identities, but two identities that most of us in this room have. We're United States Americans, and we're disciples of Jesus. And, and uh, you, you, you should see some of the images that you can find when you Google Christian and American. You know, you just, we start blending these images, but these images are powerful in our head, you know. This one down here, you know, if you, if you really care about God, you know, you know which party you have to vote for, which party is, is carrying the cross in our society. But again, we, we see this language that's used to kind of help us blur those lines between being Christian and being a disciple. It, it raises the question that I like to ask people, and that is, who are you? Who are you? Are you American Christians or are you Christians in America? Think about it. The answer is, is important. Are you a Christian in America or are you an American Christian? I've lived uh, for eight months in southern France in Lyon. I've lived for eight months at one time and two or three times for a couple of months in China. Uh, in nine years, I mentioned I lived in Mexico. I, 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 I got a sense of what it's like to be a, a, a resident alien. And, and I pay attention to what's going on in France. I pay attention to the politics. I pay attention to the sports, try to figure out why they love soccer so much. And in China, of course, I was paying attention to any English newspaper I could get to figure out what's going on. But because I was not Chinese, because I wasn't French, because I wasn't Mexican, I, I was invested very differently. I was an American in China. I was an American in France. I was an American you know, in, in Mexico. And it caused me to just, there was a certain distance. Uh, you, I knew in Mexico there were all kinds of political problems. And, oh boy, in the church, there were, you know, fights, literally, uh, <laughs> over politics. You know, are you bond or pretty? And, oh, people would leave the church when they find out that, you know, one of the elders was from the wrong party. It was crazy. Um, you know, I didn't have that same passion that they had about those things. Because, well, I... I'm not a citizen here. Oh, I care about it. That's why I was there. I care, but, but not in the same way. And I think that for us, we need to ask that question. How do we see ourselves? American Christian, it, it, it's, it's very easy to lose your identity there, but when you talk, your, talk about yourself as, an Americ, as a Christian in America, first of all, it, it causes you to put the priority on your true identity as a Christian, and it's also going to open up your relationship to people who are resident aliens, because you're going to have a lot to share with them. You're going to have a lot more in common with them. But I think it's going to also change the way we think about politics in America. Suddenly now it's not like everything is dependent on the 20, 20 trust me, people, you're going to hear people say, this is the most important election of your lifetime. Nothing's more important than voting for fill in the blank. And it's very easy to get all hyped up and get excited and go, yes, this is it. I've got to, and I've got to vote correctly and I've got to convince other people to vote correctly. And one way I can do that is, well, maybe not speaking so respectfully of the other. If we embraced our missional role as a calling of resident aliens, what would that look like? Well, first of all, it would, it would mean that we have to acknowledge where we live. And, and it's, not, it's a little bit easier here in Malibu, California, to talk about living in Egypt. There are other places I travel in our country. When I talk about acknowledging that we all live in Egypt, that we live in Babylon, 
I feel like Saul. I need a people. I need people camped around me to protect me because, you know, it's just like God's guns and the American flag. And I'm going. I don't know about that. God's gun in the Bible. I just. Well, I really don't understand that. We live in Egypt. Every country is Egypt. Every country is Babylon. We don't live in the promised land. We need to think about the wonderful examples we have from the Bible. We have wonderful examples of how to live in Babylon, how to live in the United States of America in 2019. So, well, what would that mean? That some people would say we're, we're just saying that all we care about is life after death and we don't care about life before death. That's not true. I mean, Joseph, Mordecai, and Esther, they would tell us, because each of them was a resident alien. Joseph in Egypt, Mordecai and, and his cousin Esther in Persia. They never forgot who they were. Joseph never forgot he was a Hebrew. And, and Mordecai and Esther never forget that they are, they are Israelites, that they are Jewish. And yet there they are doing good for Egypt. I mean, Joseph saves Egypt. Mordecai saves the king. Saves his life. A pagan king. They do good. They would say to us, do good in Egypt and Persia. If you live in Babylon and Egypt, be the, as a Christian, do good there. The exiles who went to, to Babylon, who were sent to Babylon by God, in the letter that Jeremiah gets for them, he sends them this letter and he says to the people, he says, you know, I, I, carried, you to Egypt, I carried you to Babylon because of your rebellion. And now that you're in Babylon, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray for the peace of the Babylonians. I want you to do good to the Babylonians. Well, they're the people who destroyed us. They destroyed our country. They killed most of our population and brought the rest of us here to Babylon. And he says, pray for it. Do good for it. Daniel reminds us, there he is in Babylon, to speak courageously yet humbly to power. To use our, our ability to speak like David respectfully to power. Paul would tell us we need to promote our true citizenship. Remind people, not only that they're resident aliens, but remind them, if I'm a resident alien, I want to know then where is my true homeland? You know, I, I'm tired of living with a green card. Will I ever have a passport? Right now, all I've got is a green card. By the way, green cards aren't green anymore. Uh, so if somebody wants to sell you a green card and it's green, mm -mm. it's chafa, we say in Spanish. You know, but Paul would say promote our true citizenship in an inclusive and borderless kingdom. Focus on the supremacy of Christ rather than the supremacy of you name the party, you name the candidate. And remember where our journey ends. I love this passage from Philippians chapter 3. Paul is reminding these people living in a Roman colony called Philippi. And from what I understand, the Romans decided that one way to repopulate the city that they had destroyed, that we now in the Bible know as Philippi, one way they repopulated the city that they had decimated in a war with the, with the Greeks, was they told retiring Roman soldiers that they would give them land there. Imagine if you've ever been to Oceanside, right near Camp Pendleton. I mean, you've got some really patriotic people there. Every pickup has an American flag on the back of it. I mean, you know, they would not like to hear what I said about this being Egypt or Babylon. And yet Paul's writing to these people in Philippi, and we know at least one of them was a soldier. Remember the soldier that was converted at night? And Paul writes to them and he says, our citizenship is in heaven. And these are people who are proud. You know, we sing, I'm proud to be an American. They would say, I'm proud to be a Roman. And Paul's saying, no, our true citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Not from the White House, not from Congress. We await a Savior from our true homeland, heaven, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. It sounds like he's saying something very similar to what David said. When David says to Saul, I trust that God is going to do what's right. And David, Paul is saying here to the church in Philippi, he says, remember your true homeland. If you remember your true homeland, it's easier to act and think like a resident alien here. A thousand years from now, brothers and sisters, we are not going to be singing this national anthem of the United States or of Mexico or of China or France or any other country. We're not going to be singing, I'm proud to be an American. We're going to be singing the song of the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God. We're going to be singing that song. But we need to be reminded of it. It's one of the reasons we gather every week to remember our true Savior when we take those emblems that remind us of his body and his blood. Resident aliens are these people who embrace what people are referring to a non-partisan commitment to the Lamb's agenda. I think we need to vote. I think it's, it's a shame when Christians don't vote. I am going to vote. I vote in every election. My wife likes to vote by mail and not me. I like to go and get the little sticker. I like to go into the booth. I like it. I like to vote. I, I, you know, a lot of blood was shed for me to be able to have that, that, that opportunity. And I try to encourage everybody I can to vote. But I think we need to be very, very conscientious and thoughtful. I like what Rod Rayer says in the Benedict Option. He's writing to Christians who today find it very difficult to separate their identity as Christians from their identity as, as Americans. He says, no matter how furious and all-consuming partisan political battles are, Christians have to keep clearly before us the fact that conventional American politics cannot fix what is wrong with our society and culture. If we can just get the right party or keep the right party in, in power, we're going to you know, make America great again. That's not possible. They're inadequate because in both their left-wing and right-wing forms, they operate from a position that facilitating and expanding human choice is the proper end of our politics. Vote for us and you're going to get what you want. Vote for us and you're going to get, you know, if you ever saw the movie uh, uh, Napoleon Dynamite, vote for me and I'll make your wildest dreams come true. That's what we're being told. Vote for us and we'll make you happy. He says the left and the right just disagree on where to draw the line. Neither party's program is fully consistent with Christian truth. I love that. My friend Sam Rodriguez, no relation to me, in his book, The Lamb's Agenda, Sam is the president of the National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference. He says, he says about this, he says, we're convinced, and he's talking about the Latino church, Latino evangelical church in the United States, he says, we're convinced that the next great movement in America will not be a reformed Democrat party or revitalized Republican party, but rather a Christ-centered, I love this, Bible-based, spirit-empowered movement committed to righteousness and justice in the name of Jesus, not in the name of the Republican or Democratic party or Green party or Libertarian party. In Jesus' name, the most important platforms will not stem from the agenda of the donkey or the elephant, but will be the agenda of the lamb. I recommend you read Sam's book, The Lamb's Agenda. Are we, finally, think about it, are we praying missionally for our leaders? We spend a lot of time talking about them and tweeting about them and 
saying things that aren't completely true, certainly aren't respectful about them, but are we praying for our leaders the way Paul told us to pray for them? He says pray for them, but pray for them not to make America great again, or France, or China, or any other country great. He said we pray for our leaders with a missional purpose so that we will be able to do what we are here to do, and that is to preach that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of the world. He says, I urge you then, First of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. It pleases God when we pray for our leaders who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between the God God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And a, and, the, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. But he says, pray for our leaders. Why? That we can live a certain kind of life. He calls it a peaceful and quiet life. But not just so we can be happy but so that we can actually preach the gospel. I want to vote for the party or the person that's going to help and make sure that we can do what we need to do to make God known and bring people to Christ. Not to make America great again, but to help more people become part of my true homeland. To get their green card as resident aliens who are disciples of Jesus. So honoring the dishonorable, it's a challenge for us. Let's start by showing proper respect for the office. Let's speak truthfully and respectfully about our leaders. Let's think and act like resident aliens living in Babylon. Maybe that's the hardest thing you heard today. And embrace a nonpartisan commitment to the Lamb's agenda. And then let's pray missionally for our leaders. I know we've gone over time, but let me just pray for just a moment for our leaders. Father God, we thank you for this privilege you've given us in the name of Jesus to come before you. Father, we want to confess that we have not honored you. For your name's sake, we have not prayed enough for our leaders. For many of us, we just can't hardly imagine praying for our leaders. Father, forgive us. Well, we do pray that you will bless all of our local leaders, our state leaders, our federal leaders. We pray that you will bless President Trump. You will surround him with people, not like those who surrounded Saul, but with people who will speak truth to power, and that he'll listen. And he won't act on behalf of his party or himself, that even without knowing why, he will, he will like, like the king who listened to Nehemiah, he will just be moved to act and think and legislate in a way that brings honor and glory to you and also makes it possible for your people to be your people and spread the word that there is a leader in whom we can trust. There is a leader in whom we can invest all the glory and honor because he's not seeking anybody's honor but yours. Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus. Help us in the next 16 months and beyond, Father, to follow the example of David in our relationship with dishonorable people. 
And help us, Father, to be respectful of each other when we disagree with who is dishonorable. Above all, Lord, help us to behave in a way, think in a way, talk in a way, tweet in a way that honors you, our true Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, everyone. And enjoy the rest of the afternoon. Don't leave early. Great program tonight planned in the field house. Dinner right now. And it's going to be a great evening. All right. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.